This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. 1581, somewhere in the South Pacific Ocean. Captain Arkwright had assembled somewhat of a skeleton crew for this particular voyage. After sailing around the South Pacific, encountering new peoples as they visited dotted islands stranded on the edge of nowhere. They were told stories through song and dance, through pictures etched into the cliff walls of passing giants, standing like animate stone monsters rising from the depths. Captain Arkwright and his men had learned of a place that the islanders of various locales dare not venture near. El Banur, the Island of Death. Said to be the home of an endemic monster growing amongst the palms and bogs of its inner lagoon, it is a place where those who venture in do not return. Indeed, the legends of man-eating plants has captured the imaginations of horror fiction throughout history. However, the origins of such tales are what interest us the most. As like many folklore and legendary tales, the horrors are often based in truth. Could such man-eating monstrous plants have existed in our world's ancient past? Even more disturbing, could such plants still be growing in the far reaches of our world's untouched jungles today? Join us on Into the Portal for a journey into the world of undiscovered monsters and some of the strangest tales in cryptobotany. Man-eating plants. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. Welcome back, everyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we've got uh, an interesting episode for you guys this week. It is different than anything we've covered before. I'm really excited about this. It's pretty cool. It's really fun. But first, before we get into any of that, a little bit of housekeeping. Quick bit of housekeeping. So, pretty excited. We have a couple of new patrons. Yes! So really, so yeah, stoked on this. Definitely. So thank you so much uh, to Talon Wise and Luis or, I think Martinez. It's Talon? I don't know. I feel like Talon's more badass. I hope so. That's a badass name. <laughs> I did have a friend in high school named Talon, though, so I, I won't oh, reference that. But oh, okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. Talon uh, or Talon Wise and Luis Martinez, thank you so much, you guys, uh, for joining us uh, on our Patreon page. Yeah. You guys are in for a treat. So totally. stay tuned for some cool stuff coming your way. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we had our uh, winners of the pumpkin carving contest. Yeah, holy crap. Okay, so we were wowed with these entries. Like, it was so cute. We had all ages, all abilities, and I loved each and every one of them. But, of course, we did have to pick some winners. So we did end up picking two, thanks to our Kryptonaut guest judges. Yes, indeed. And so we went with the Weird With You podcast. They had a really cool, like, classic super jack-o'-lantern. Classic. yeah. Just... It was really neat. And then we also had one that was, like, super artistic from Patrick Swag. Yeah. He called him Sweet Tooth, and I would not want to run into this Sweet Tooth. It was freaky, yeah. man. Yeah, so that one came yeah. out on Instagram, right? It did. And uh, lots of, they yeah, had really cool effort you going into that You know what it kind of reminded me of is like the super gnarly, when in Trick or Treat, when he takes off his mask, like 
little trick-or-treating goblin thing and he's got that kind of reminded me of that but definitely anyways yeah that is one of my favorite halloween movies of all time but thanks for everyone who entered and we are actually we've decided i think officially that this is going to be an annual thing people were asking (laughs) for it like people were tweeting at me and being like oh man like i didn't get to enter like i'm so disappointed and i was like don't worry like we're gonna do it definitely next year for sure we should try and do something for christmas too Ooh, maybe we could what come can up we with carve for spooky. Christmas? Like... <laughs> Keep Halloween going year round. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We can come up with something maybe. Ah, oh, what would you carve though? I'm trying mm. to think now. Like, what do you do? You carve potatoes, I guess. Carve potatoes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep the rutabaga train going. You had a rutabaga <laughs> they stink, that you did though. this year. They're so yeah. stinky. Only for outside pumpkins. Yeah. One more thing too before we get started. Um, just wanted to give a shout out to Faux Fright Podcast. So um, we actually just connected on Twitter. And I uh, haven't listened to all of your episodes yet, but it's a really cool show, so go check them out. And um, the reason we connected was he actually helped us out by, uh, he has an Ancestry.com account. Mm. So I was doing some searching around for one of the characters um, that comes up in the episode today mm-hmm. to see if they're a real person or not. Still kind of inconclusive, and we'll mention it later, but thank you very much to That's Folk a Fright. huge help. Like, Ancestry, like, we've debated getting our own subscription. It is kind of expensive, though, like, because we want to go, like, you know, like, balls to the wall and get, like, the full... You'd have to do the full one, yeah. Yeah, so that's about $130 for six months. Yeah. So, hmm. Hop on over to Patreon. We can, uh, we'll, we'll be able, we'll be <laughs> yeah. able to afford it eventually, but, uh, because then exactly. we can really dig into some, some crazy research. We want to fact check this stuff. Yeah. All the time. Anyways. So are you ready to get into this? Let's do it. So today, we're taking a trip uh, off the beaten path of regular cryptozoology and into the world of cryptobotany. Yes. Which is really cool. It's um, something that I guess, I mean, a lot of people probably don't think of. Well, they always think of the unknown fauna, not so much the unknown flora. Indeed. Mm. So today Maybe. we are discussing the prospect of there being man-eating plants left in the untouched corners of our world. Yeah. Which is pretty freaky and really cool once yeah like as soon as i dove into this and started reading some of the accounts like i was just kind of like in my head i was like this kind of makes sense like you know what i mean like it doesn't actually seem like that far off no i agree so it's kind of funny when people make the argument that it's like it's so much more absurd than absurd. Sorry, I said that really weird. Seward, so it sounded like. Yeah. But it, like, it's not that much more absurd than say like finding an unknown animal. I think it's even more likely that there's so many more unknown plants because of the fact that they can't get up and move. They I, can't show themselves to us. I actually, I, I would tend to agree with right? you, which is the argument for the exact opposite exactly. most of the time, right? Totally, But yeah. we'll develop that idea a little more as we go. Mm-hmm. But to, to kick things off here, though, um, I just wanted to elaborate a little more from the intro of the mm. episode, which is based on, based on a true story, or based on a true account, anyway, of this island of death, this oh. island known as El Banur. Um, that sort of first came to Western attention because of, um, of an explorer, British explorer named Captain Hugh Arkwright. So basically like the indigenous peoples of the South Pacific allegedly knew of this place and sort of refused to visit it for sure, but definitely refused to even go near it. So they wouldn't even venture even close to the lagoon, you know, that's, uh, before the reef of this island or whatever, right? Interesting. This reminds me of... North Sentinel. Very much so. (laughs) Except with a little bit more of a insidious... Uh, occupant, so to speak, because at least the people on North Sentinel are just trying to do their thing. Yeah, but they're very hostile. They are indeed and hostile. deadly themselves yeah. from a distance with those arrows. Right. <laughs> but the the fascinating thing about this sort of early story is that... Oh, 
It's taboo, the DVD. It's taboo. <laughs> Make it a quick appearance. Yeah, no, the interesting thing about this early story is just the idea that they wouldn't set foot on it, sure, but wouldn't even go near it. So the hmm. idea that maybe like spores or seeds or things could actually, it could reach you without actually even physically being on the island, that was just kind of this this cool idea spores. that I had with this, right? Okay. Because they feared this plant that lived on this island, a plant so dangerous that it spread through the folklore of the islands for literally thousands of years. Hmm. So like I said, Captain Hugh Arkwright, he sailed the Pacific around 1581 and he was warned of, of this island by various different peoples <coughs> around. It was essentially the home of the what we now know as the death flower okay. or the corpse flower. Oh, yeah. I've and, heard of that one. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure. Like, this is this story is a mix of folklore and, you know, quasi-legitimate well, account. 1581 Exactly, people. right? But the cool thing about this so is So, wait a second. Just pause for a okay, second. Okay, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. This guy, Hugh Arkwright, would be someone that we would want to look up on Ancestry.com. Yeah. Right? Well, like, he was definitely a real person. Was he definitely like, a real person? Like, by all accounts, person? from what I could see, yeah, he was mm-hmm. a, he was a real explorer. Even so. <laughs> it's, it's always, always nice good to, to triple check, check right? <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> Sorry. Continue. But the freaky thing about the flowers on this island were basically that they were so massive that a full a full-grown man could stand up inside of it. Okay. So giant plants. And they claimed that the aroma that this flower would get off was so intoxicating that basically any human couldn't couldn't ignore it and essentially you would be drawn into this and you would crawl in and fall asleep in this flower only to have its petals fold over you suffocating you and then by the time you realize where you are you're already stuck being slowly digested the way i see this is almost like a pokemon style attack like an oddish attack you know it's so cute right oddish you always see him he's always sleeping and like or not always sleeping but a lot of it and he does have that sleep powder attack Mm -hmm. because i could just see like someone like yeah just falling asleep cuddling up next to oddish Mm -hmm. and then oddish is like you know like he has got all those leaves on the top and they just kind of fold in on the person and just and then just absorb them yeah so Not very that. much like a ve- very much like a Venus flytrap, except much more massive. Is the mm-hmm. is this as the stories go here? That's so cool. So this was kind of one of the early accounts of an island, sort of this. People didn't know if it was a real place or not, harboring a species that was basically had an insidious nature to it. So you mentioned here, like there's these strange fragrances that kind of have this like uh, intoxicating effect. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's the opposite of the corpse flower. That's, yeah, exactly right? right. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, it's so funny because like what I've heard most commonly reported is that this corpse flower obviously smells like a dead decaying Disgusting. body. Yeah. And then that's how it attracts all these insects, right? Yeah. That would be normally attracted to a decaying human body. Right. And therefore that's its sort of source of food. Yeah. But this is interesting, right? Because it's kind of the reverse yeah. where it's almost like giving off what I would imagine like to be pheromones yeah something along those um, lines mimicking mimicking, mimicking. mammal pheromones exactly kind, yeah. yeah and so you just kind of oh man it yeah. right it's like the creepiest little fairy tale hey it's or... it totally and, and since we know the corpse flower is a real thing it's almost like this if if this island was real uh this is the sort of the nice smelling dainty cousin of the corpse flower you know what i mean <laughs> like, so this is just generic to the south pacific though right and of course this island doesn't exist today um, so there's, there's no... speculation that, no, right? Like this was just a tiny dotted rock in the legends that had these plants on it. Okay. And so you and I were talking about this the other day, like, well, 1581, 
maybe maybe there was some sort of like volcanic activity or something that happened and we could have lost some of these smaller yeah. just specks in the specks they in do. the ocean right they just disappear plates subduct and uh, we lose land masses all the time right so it's not unheard of and we know that this is about 500 years ago exactly and so. we know that a lot of islands in the south pacific obviously have species that are completely endemic to those yeah. islands you do not find them anywhere else so if this island did exist with this flower Maybe it's sunk to the bottom of the ocean now and we will never know. But that is kind of a, that was the, I thought that was the the best way to kick off this story, these accounts. Love that story. Because it's just kind of, yeah, takes us back in time. So neat. So, yeah. Okay, that's (laughs) highly speculative, highly imaginative, and... uh, (laughs) Fun, vague, early account. It really is, yeah. But it, it sets the stage, I think, for... For a really interesting episode. So yeah. thank you, Andrew, for starting Indeed. off with that. But ov- obviously, we already know of some plants in this world that are carnivorous. And duh, like you know, like the or the first one that everyone would think of is obviously the Venus flytrap. Of course. And I actually didn't even know that this. <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, maybe, but I didn't know that this came from North America. Okay. I thought it was perhaps maybe Central or South America, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or maybe from the Caribbean islands. I'm not sure, but this is new to me. This was actually from the boggy region that first discovered in these regions of North Carolina and Virginia. Mm-hmm. So in swampy areas, you know, like lots of moisture, lots of humidity, kind of mimicking a subtropical environment. Yeah. So that does work, right? Totally. And it's so funny because like when I was a kid... I was obsessed with these Venus flytraps. I would always go down to my local uh, flower shop, uh, Rick's Garden World, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I would always pick them up. And they always came in these tiny little pots, like a half-inch pot, and they were always covered. And they had, like, a lot of moisture and a lot of that, and they were these tiny little things and so much fun to play with when you're a kid. But I'm pretty sure I killed it, like, instantly, oh, yeah. because I was always poking it, trying to get it to close. Yeah. So it's, like wasting all of its energy on that and not actually absorbing anything. Plus there was like no flies in my house for whatever reason. (laughs) So anyways, it was always a bad thing, but Venus flytraps, Hey, like they're, this is the cute little carnivorous guy that you can have on your desk or wherever. And, uh, you wouldn't even think that it could possibly digest you. No. But. Or that it might have an ancestor large enough to enclose upon you. Yeah. yeah. But it's funny, right? Because, like, I talk about this as, like, it's a normal everyday thing. But it wasn't even discovered until about the... Well, it's debated. So yeah. the 1760s was when it was first kind of... Things were trickling into the scientific world, of the Western scientific yeah, world. Yeah, like, no doubt, obviously, indigenous populations course, were acutely of course, aware of it. yeah. So this is very Western-centric. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it, it d- did start receiving a lot of attention in this sort of uh, later half of the 1700s. And it was funny, this guy, Arthur Dobbs, who was the royal governor of North Carolina, um, he even remarked how unusual this little plant was. Mm-hmm. But Charles Darwin also made his comments um, in 1892, and he described the Venus flytrap as, quote, one of the most wonderful plants in the world. And this was uh, in uh, quoted in Insectivorous Plants. Yeah. Insectivorous. Looking specifically He's not saying carnivorous. He's saying insectivorous. Yeah. (laughs) If I'm saying that right. What is the difference? No difference, really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it's so funny, right? Because at this time, this is folklore. This is exactly what we're talking about right now with these larger renditions of these plants. Yeah. So no one actually believed this was to be true until a man named John Ellis... 
a member of the Honorable East India Trading Company. That's actually so fitting that the Taboo DVD came out oh, that's uh, while so funny. we were doing this recording because anybody who's watched that show, we should cover it for a film variety, even though it's oh, not a movie too. We should. Um, awesome series. It's just so great. Which is dark and folklore elements and supernatural. Well, supernatural. Yeah, exactly. Like it does fit the themes of the show. There's witchcraft, there's black witchcraft, magic, there's all sorts of stuff. And, and history. Honorable East India Company. Yeah, so not so honorable no. if you ask a lot of people. Um, but yeah, this guy, John Ellis, he was a part of uh, the company and he did, he was sort of like one of the main guys that was um, a shipper receiver of plants. Mm-hmm. And he dealt with um, all sorts of exotic specimens. He was kind of like, you know, trying to make a catalog of sorts, I would imagine. And he worked with a guy named um, William Young, who was the royal botanist of the time. So they would work together and they're just, yeah, basically exporting plants to England for further study. Yeah, it was just, yeah, and it was a business too. It was about... Oh, totally, yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course. (laughs) Why else would they be doing it? Right, yeah. but anyways, yeah, so Ellis, he actually went on to write two uh, most famous botanists by the name of Carl Linnaeus, which many of you may be familiar with, like the Linnaeus classification system. Right. He's kind of the father of uh, modern taxonomy. And so he described this plant, and um, in the letter, he actually named it after the Greek goddess Diana, um, or the god that the Romans called Venus. So that's where we get Venus flytrap. Right. Actually interesting. fitting, hey? Yeah, that is kind of interesting. Well, I wonder what the inspiration was to name it after the Greek goddess though. <laughs> yeah, like was she was she particularly um Ooh, was she venomous? Yeah, Not venomous, but you know what I mean? Uh, like vindictive yeah, or something or maybe. Carnivorous. Hmm. Maybe she just liked eating insects. <coughs> Excuse <Who knows>? me. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so like kind of opened the doors for everyone's wild imaginations to kind of just go out and find these things, right? Like, that's that's so inspiring if you think about it. Yeah, and it kicked everything off, right? Because, it, yeah, like, especially for people back in, in Europe and in, in the UK specifically, you know, who didn't believe that these things existed, and then here, here you have, they trickle back in, and they're being put on display at, uh, you know, the Royal whatever, like, um, Museum of Natural History, essentially. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been called that at the time or whatever, right? Yeah. And then, of course, along with this, we have reports trickling in from various mm. um, corners of the globe of plants that are not, not only similar to this Venus flytrap that now people know is real, mm-hmm. but ones that are large enough to consume first mm-hmm. rodents, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. dogs, okay, getting a little bigger, yep. monkeys, mm-hmm. and even reports of humans being consumed by these plants. All right. We're so, getting dark here. Yeah. And that's where we get into one of the uh, most well-known stories with cryptobotany and with man-eating trees and plants, and that is the man-eating tree of Madagascar. (laughs) So there's been a couple different... It is. And there's been a few different reports of it, inconclusive proof. No one really knows if it exists, but definitely one of the most infamous ones uh, in this category. So... (laughs) The first report of it uh, came out in the 1870s, and it was said to uh, exist in the remote, dense, humid jungles of Madagascar. So, just a little bit of brief info on the island itself. Everyone's familiar with Madagascar, whether it be from the movie. Aww, <laughs> or, those cute little lemurs. Right? And everyone pretty much knows, like, the species on Madagascar are endemic to that place. Like, yeah. they are, they're, they're very unique that and you know what's interesting right? even as an additional side note is the idea that w- we watched that documentary right that was suggesting that there was a massive um piece of land like continental landmass that actually was like subducted at one point but might have connected madagascar to the indian subcontinent right 
And there was that whole, what was that called again? It was like the, the lost continent of something, and it was in a lot of oh, folklore. Yeah. And they basically described this um, this specific peoples that disappeared along with it because they had angered some god or something, kind of how the story goes. Right. But interesting, right, to, to think that at one point, Madagascar could have been part of another continent right. that could have had all, a lot of these animals and a lot of their earlier sort of uh, uh, evolutionary forms. Yeah. And many that could have just simply died off. No kidding. But what if there was just one left? What if, I'm, I'm imagining like the separation of the two continents and there's like a bunch of plants on the one that's <laughs> sinking and then there's one left on the side that stays up above water and just it's just like them boom, disappears the... into the depths of the sea. There's, I, I, that is a really cool thing to think about. Yeah. The prospect of that. And obviously we see, I mean, that would make sense actually when you think about the types of species that we see in places like Australia and New Guinea and sort of these other, you know, places in the Indian Ocean and different things. And the asian subcontinent right mm-hmm. anyway yeah sorry fascinating Side note. <laughs> yeah going back to madagascar fourth largest island in the world which is kind of crazy twice the size of great britain that's insane i didn't know that yeah so you know when you're thinking about obviously places where things could hide <laughs> um if you look on google earth today a lot of it's obviously like deforested um uh what's it called like desertification is going on mm-hmm. right and it, that's a product of climate change and forced like logging yeah. and all kinds of different things like that. Unsustainable. If you were to look things. at Google Earth 500 years ago, it would be a very different place. Oh, obviously, for right? Sure. Um, located in the Indian Ocean, just off the coast of Mozambique, so it was a natural port for seafarers. It just made sense. So people going from Africa uh, or Indonesia, kind of traveling in these areas, right? Mm-hmm. Changing port for traders, um, and it was a good spot to stop if you were in the path of a cyclone, um, oh, because really? it was one of the only sort of spots to, to, to stop by mm-hmm. um what else we got here madagascar madagascar was also an early port for pirates oh. because of its obvious distance from europe and the absence of a significant naval power in the area that's interesting so this was kind of a favorite hunting grounds for privateers uh, who were trying to kind of like make their way but it was also a, a popular just straight up hiding place so whether you were there to kind of eat and just uh you know survive for a little while or to for a quick hideout maybe stash some treasure who knows Mm. um yeah i mean rich biodiversity the island has is home to five percent of the world's plant and animal species which is it doesn't sound like a lot it's kind of crazy it's one island five percent of the entire world species right um and around 80 percent of them are endemic only to madagascar like we said so if you look at that you could say that 4% 4% of the world's plant and animal species is endemic to Madagascar. Yeah. If I'm doing my percentages right, because 80% of 5% would be 4%, correct? <laughs> right? <laughs> sure, sure. The point Someone is out there the, will understand what I said. The, the, the point, though, is that the majority of the unique... Like, they're, they're not found anywhere else. When you look at, like, the lemurs that are found there and stuff exactly. like that, the insects. And there's going to be similar animals in places like New Guinea, places like that. I'm curious now as to the actual number of plant and animal species that's on the island itself. You know... Because there's, there's a million, and I have a quote here that's kind of interesting. It says yeah. here... This is just from MaritimeHeritage.org, but it says here, One of the sublime reasons for traveling the world is to see things you would never see at home. Madagascar is home to strange creatures such as <laughs> leaf-tailed geckos, phanalocas, mongoose, tenrecs, and several types of lemurs, dwarf, indri, 
uh, weasel, bamboo, mouse, eye eyes. These are all times types of lemurs. Right. <laughs> eye eyes, all which are nocturnal. A beautiful creamy white dancing one. Oh, interesting. About half of the world's 150 species of chameleons and more than 300 species of frogs. Crazy. And it's also home to the baobab tree. Ooh, and the chocolate fruits of a cacao tree. Mm. A theobroma cacao tree. Mm. Very interesting. But yeah, no, it just kind of speaks to the, um, just the plethora of species there. I yeah, no doubt. And like the fact that too, like, of course, a lot of things die off every year these days, but we also discover new species all the time. Yeah. Plants, insects, birds, Definitely. All fish. Things, um, yeah, are constantly revolutionizing themselves too, right? And mm-hmm. Becoming adapted to the current conditions and who knows what sorts of interesting... It was funny, right? When we were even... Yesterday, we were watching a bunch of monster quests about, like, the possibilities of interbreeding between different eight species and things like that. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of what if... Like, what if there's some crazy crossbreeding going on out there that is just, you know... With plants, you mean? Well, with yeah, with plants and with, like, animals, too. Like, you never know. You like, never know. Especially with insects, right? Like, the, the rate of evolution would be way faster than, say, with, like, a, a mammal species. Yeah, no doubt. Their that. life cycle would just be... And then with plants, it would be even more. Like, I'm thinking of um, oh, Mendel's pea plants and how he was able to um, create so many different uh, types of sub, sub-phenotypes sub within those pea plants within, uh, like, not even, like, 10 years type thing, you know? So it's just, it's interesting, right? The, you can play with that a bit. And Definitely. in these types of conditions, you would have to wonder, like, oh, it's just, yeah. Never My know. imagination is just spinning wild right Don't now. Believe. Why don't you um, give us the little prelude to the story here then? The prelude. All right. Well, the tree. So this actually came, this is fairly recent, I would say. Like it only came to Western attention in the later half of the 1800s. So 1878 is the date yep. when um, this letter, it's an alleged letter because there's no record of it now, but it was received by a one Dr. Emilius Fredlowski, who was a Polish biologist. And this letter claimed to have witnessed some crazy stuff, people. Yeah. It was a fatal encounter with an unknown coniferous... Coniferous? (laughs) I meant to say... It should say carnivorous. Coniferous? I'm like, what? It's not a pine tree. (laughs) (laughs) That's deadly pines. Deadly pines. You know, they're they're like needles, man. They'll stick right through. That would be bizarre. Hey, you find a pine tree in the middle of Madagascar. That's just as much of a crypto (laughs) botany episode. All right. It's an unknown carnivorous plant located in the interior of the Madagascar island. So, yeah, like we said, this is debated um, since there are several claims that has shown up in like various publications for the very first time. Yeah. So it's kind of just like, mm-hmm. who knows? Who, right. who had it first? So it's possible that on um, April 28th, 1874, so four years prior to the initial date, um, that the New York World actually ran an article announcing the discovery uh, in, Ma- in Madagascar of a remarkable new plant species, which is this supposed man-eating tree. Right. Yeah, so apparently this letter um, that was given to the Polish biologist um, Fred Lowski was written by a German naturalist and explorer by the name of Karl Liche, possibly spelled with a K, maybe a C, maybe with a Y on the end of it, maybe not, who right. knows. Mm-hmm. Um, the letter, real or not, described a horrific scene in the dense jungles of Madagascar looking for indigenous people while he was looking for the indigenous peoples of the Makotos. Yeah. But the way that I read it was that he was already with them or he was with another tribe when mm-hmm. um, he happened to witness this amazing and 
awe-inspiring and horrific scene. Yeah, I would go with the latter. So (laughs) he witnessed a nightmare, essentially, is what I would describe it as. Definitely. And um, essentially, this was a human sacrifice. Yeah. So... We have an awesome little quote here from yeah, Carl Yeah, so I'm going to read this book. out. And before I read this out too, um, just to just to reiterate again, this was the um, this was the name that we were searching up on Ancestry through Faux right, Fright podcast. Right. And he basically said that like the name comes up, Carl Leachy, but um, and there's a few different people with that name and with the two variations on the spelling, but none are attached to any biologist, biologist mm. or naturalist or the government or explorer. Uh, yeah, so mm. super super vague, but. Here is uh, how the original letter goes. All right. If you can imagine a pineapple eight feet high and thick in proportion resting upon its base and denude of leaves, you would have a good idea of the trunk of the tree, a dark, dingy brown, and apparently as hard as iron. From the apex of this truncated cone, eight leaves hung sheer to the ground. These leaves were all about 11 or 12 feet long, tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn and with a concave face thickly set with strong, thorny hooks. The apex of the cone was a round, white, concave figure, like a smaller plate set within a larger one. This was not a flower, but a receptacle, and there exuded into it a clear, treacly liquid, honey-sweet, and possessed a violent, intoxicating, and sophoric properties. Hmm. From underneath the rim of the undermost plate, a series of long, hairy, green tendrils stretched out in every direction. These were seven or eight feet long. Above these six white, almost transparent palpi tentacles reared themselves toward the sky, twirling and twisting with a marvelous, incessant motion. Thin as reeds, apparently they were yet five or six feet tall. All right. So basically it goes on to say... This isn't a part of the quote, but after a shrieking of uh, sessions of prayers to the sinister tree, because essentially he was witnessing, like you said, a sacrifice. It's like a ritual. Mm-hmm. Right. The natives encircled uh, one of the women in their tribe and forced her with their spears to climb its trunk until at last she stood at its summit, surrounded by its tentacle-like palpi dancing like snakes on all sides. The natives told the doomed woman to drink. So she bent down and drank the treacle-like fluid filling the tree's uppermost plate and became wild with hysterical frenzy. Hmm. All right. So it continues on. She did not jump down as she seemed to intend to do. Oh no, (laughs) the atrocious cannibal tree that had been so inert and dead came suddenly savagely to life. The slender, delicate palpi uh, with the fury of starved serpents quivered a moment over her head then fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms. Then, while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly to be uh, instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan. The tendrils, one after another like green serpents with brutal energy and infernal uh, rapidity, rose, retracted themselves, and wrapped her about in a fold after fold, ever tightening with cruel swiftness and the savage tenacity of anacondas fastening upon their prey. (laughs) And now the great leaves slowly rose and stiffly erected themselves in the air, approached one over the other and closed about the dead and hampered victim with the silent force of a hydraulic press. And then the ruthless purpose of, oh, and the ruthless purpose of a thumb screw Anyway, should I continue? Yes, please. <laughs> While I could see the base of these great levers pressing more tightly towards each other from their, 
inter- intersections, they trickled down the stalk of the great tree streams of a, vis- of a viscid honey-like fluid that mingled horribly with the blood and oozing <laughs> viscera of the victim. Viscera. Viscera. Mm. Uh, at the sight of the savage... Uh, at the sight of the savage hordes around me, yelling madly, bounding forward, crowding the tree. <laughs> Man, I'm getting lost here. Madly bounded for a crowded to the tree, collapsed it, and with their cup, with cups, leaves, hands, and tongues, each obtained enough liquid liquor to send him mad with frantic, in a frenzy. So essentially, they're drinking the fluid that's a combination of the blood and the liquid from the tree. So it hmm. finishes off by saying the retracted leaves of the giant tree kept their upright position during 10 days. Then when I came one morning, they were prong again. Interesting. The tendrils stretched, the palpi floating, and nothing but a white skull at the foot of the tree remained of the sacrifice that had taken place there. So it's about a 10-day digestive period. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's very interesting. So that That's is... a combination of so many different... Um, like biological traits and things like, especially like, yeah, like the, the hydraulic press, the silent force, like yeah. that's very interesting. That reminds me obviously of the clamping mechanism that we see of Venus flytraps, right? Where it is very, it's a slow, but very intentional, very steady. And then it's like, there's no stopping it. Right. Right. And that's very interesting. The idea that the leaves, the eight leaves that are kind of like the outside sort of thing that they're all well well, like, beyond the scope of, like, a human, right? So they're very... It's almost like it's designed for prey that is the size of a human. Right. That is so freaky. Yeah, it's, uh... There's so many elements of fantasy to that, too, though. It's, like... Like, the idea that there's these, like, writhing, like, tendril-like palpi things. Like, that, to me, could speak to some type of um, excitable nervous system some type of um, mechanism to entice prey like birds perhaps Possibly. or something like that like something to get things into the actual but you, it's interesting though because i feel like what would be more effective would be to have those types of pheromone like um uh scents and things to attract. to attract something rather than to catch something mm-hmm. yeah no it's 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 interesting the other question with it too is if you believe the story to be true which it's never been confirmed um you know, why, why is it being worshipped that way? You know what I mean? Like, um, I, yeah, exactly. Rather than well, feared or to be avoided. I, the only reason I could put forward is the, um, psychedelic properties of that nectar right. or whatever it was they're drinking, which is also kind of bizarre if you think about it, because that is the same substance that's kind of, um, the digestive fluids I would, unless there's something else secreted into that. So to sort of activate digestive enzymes, mm-hmm. because otherwise it's like, yeah, like that sort of, um, that frenzied effect that the liquid has on the people, like that would be my main reason as to why they would worship it. Yeah. And they probably have other uses for the tree itself, Possibly. maybe. And just the fact that, um, I'd probably worship something that has the ability to digest me fully. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I but that is weird though, because it's so intentional. It is like a, a ceremony. It's yeah. not just like someone wandering through gathering and foraging and then they just happen to, you know. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it implies maybe some sort of like, yeah, like a cult. A cult of the death tree. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. So it might not be something mainstream across the island in so, ancient times or however. This is so crazy to me because obviously yeah, like we've said this is uncorroborated even just the source of the letter like many people will say that it's downright just fraud yeah um but shooker himself goes on to reference others that have attempted to locate such a tree yeah 
um, one man by the name of Chase Salmon Osborne, who was actually at one point the governor of Michigan from um, 1912 to 1913. Or sorry, 1911 to 1913. Yeah, a couple years. And so he was determined. He made a trip to Madagascar to try and locate this particular species um, sometime in the 1920s. So this is after his governorship. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, he never located such a man-eating plant. Um, and he did interview quite a few locals. Um, he was very diligent, I would say, in his attempt. But, um, yeah, yeah it, it, very unfortunate, right? Like, he said, like, basically, was it Osborne that said that he ran into natives that did know of its existence? Yeah, it was. Okay. So that was, yeah, and that's that's interesting because, okay, he's there in the 20s. Yeah. And then later on, um, you know, explorations in the, you know, 70s and you know much much later the indigenous people weren't as familiar with it so that was what was interesting about his account he went there and he um claimed to have i I think we have uh, notes on it somewhere else here yeah just down below here so he he quotes you know the bastilos the hovas different different indigenous groups on the island that Mm. knew of it at least it was a part of the folklore okay so there's at least some corroboration that at least they knew of it, and it wasn't necessarily the pitcher plant, which is a common right. species on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but he, he basically, he didn't discover anything. He was there for quite a while. The other people he talked to weren't were the missionaries. Okay. So were Catholic missionaries who also claimed to have seen it hmm. um, and that they believed in it, its existence. Not all of them did, though. Okay. Some of them did. I see. Um, so I, I, you have to wonder if the ones that either did the ones that didn't if they just refused to because of their pious nature and they refused to acknowledge the existence of such insidious creatures on god's earth basically you know what i mean they close their minds off to it quite possibly Mm -hmm. yeah so like we yeah so like we kind of alluded to this before the story is vague right so there's some belief that the story was either entirely fabricated by one person or another um Mm -hmm. it could have originated in europe a gothic horror the colonial yeah yeah and it is right like pretty much there was one report that that suggested that a guy by the name of edmund spencer um made it all up essentially yellow journalism which was prominent in the in the 1800s obviously right Mm -hmm. um it goes on to suggest this article that i was looking at that none of the people mentioned at all existed so carlo Leachy, dr Amelius fredlowski um uh, the makodos tribe Basically claiming that none of these things are real. Okay. But it's inconclusive. So, like, you... It, the only thing that is conclusive is that Osborne was 100% a real person. Osborne that was... was a governor. Yep. And that he did write this book called Madagascar, Land of the Manny Tree. Definitely. And that was published in, what, 1926? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but it's like evidence... Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And that's <laughs> just something I like to reiterate because, you know... Uh, just because Ancestry.com is a thing doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find the names attached to the stories that you're looking for when, when these people That's existed in the 1800s, right? That's true, yeah. Record people keeping was disappear. good, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't. And yeah, so we obviously get more people weighing in here, more cryptozoologists. Um, we are already familiar with Ivan P. Macrely from our uh, Deathworm episode, but there was also this guy, Roy P. Mackle, who also weighed in, and he was looking into the background of Leche. Uh, apparently, he couldn't find any conclusive records um, from Germany of any such person, um, like we said already, like yeah. no one linked to exploration. Obviously, there were people of that name, but yep. they were doing different things and weren't this person. Right. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he also suggested that 
From his perspective, these descriptions were highly embellished. It seemed to be an amalgamation of a bunch of different plant characteristics, and in his eye, it made no evolutionary sense. Right. That's that's subjective, too, if you think about it. Like, you're coming from... Well, you are a cryptozoologist, but you are coming from um, your own preconceptions of things. Yeah, for sure. But I, I get what he's saying, though, like the description of the writhing palpi and like sort of those rapid not, movements and stuff. Exactly. Those are not common with plants. No, no, you, no. You can get those movements with uh, like a mechanism reaction where you like the Venus flytrap where you're touched and it's a quick closing. Exactly. And there are obviously, uh, there is evidence to support the idea that plants do have electrical um, impulse systems and they can, they can react to stimuli and they can... They can simulate motions and things and, and seem to have... But I, to this degree, though, is highly debatable, right? right? And even, yeah, like, if cryptozoologists are weighing in and saying that this is kind of crazy, then I'll kind of, yeah, lean in their direction, too. But <laughs> He's kind of so just much. covering his butt, though, too, right? Of course, of course. And he did note, however, that there are still areas of Madagascar and New Guinea. Mm-hmm. New Guinea's interesting in this, too. Yeah. Um, where man has never stepped foot. Like, man is in, like, the Western. Western, whatever. Yeah, that type of thing. But, yeah, there could be corners of this earth that are home to such a plant. And so, yeah, obviously he was followed up again with this Ivan Mackerley. And who, again, had some interesting things to say about this as well, and potentially the story being based in some reality. Right. So essentially, this was in the late 1990s. In 1998, um, Ivan Mackerley spent a month in the jungles of Madagascar. But unfortunately, Mackerley, he did the same. He had some of the same methods as Osborne. He was interviewing locals. He was going around to different tribes going into the bush, asking people if they had ever heard of such a plant. And this is where we get the idea that they only know of the pitcher plant. They right. are not familiar with any of this, yeah. which is really unfortunate. And it kind of makes me wonder, it's like, could that have slipped out of the um, the folklore traditions? Could that have become antiquated so quickly in 70 years that no one would have heard of it, I, you know? I, you know, I think a lot of that depends on who you're asking. That to, is true. Obviously, right? You're and only you there for to, a month. Well, that's true. Yeah, a month, um, and then also, like, yeah, exactly. Which specific locals he is asking? Like, yeah. maybe there are some people that would have had the knowledge that he just didn't get to. Possibly, because but... this was the quote from Osborne uh, from the twenties. I did not see a man-eating tree, but from all the peoples I met, including the Hovas, Sakalavas, Bastilos, and others that have told stories and myths about it, why should it not exist? There are insect-eating plants with the same mechanism with the same mechanism, why could there not be one that could gorge a human? Mm. Yeah, just upsize the scale. Pretty much. <laughs> so yeah, but like they said, pitcher plants were the only one that Ivan P. Mackerley could uh, get out of these people. They're like, we're aware of the pitcher plant, but we don't know of this yeah. folkloric massive flower. And I mean, had you heard of the pitcher plant before yeah. we started looking into this oh, a little definitely. bit? Because that's featured quite prominently in um, the Planet Earth series. Right, right, yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> that and was devastating. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I, was watching, I was like, no, these <laughs> poor little insects and yeah. even other plants or other plants, other animals. Yeah. Like rodents, rodents and all sorts and of cute little cuddly Even guys. in rare cases, birds, um, if they're not careful, right. can end up in there too. 
But pitcher plants are interesting. So for those of you that don't know, essentially it's like it literally is shaped like a pitcher, like a pitcher of beer that you'd order at the bar. Um, <laughs> and it, it's, uh, its device is basically to fill the its pitcher with a sweet-smelling and very attractive um, digestive liquid, mm. essentially, that has its prey fall into it as it's uh, basically, it cannot escape, slowly digesting you know this nectar. You know what this uh, plant reminds me of? Sorry, I'm reverting back to huh, Pokemon. <laughs> um, bell sprouts uh, evolution into weeping bell. Definitely. Oh wait, and then there's another one after that, isn't there? Victory where bell. Victory bell, where it's like it looks like more of a scoop, it like, looks a, like pitcher. a pitcher plant. Mm-hmm. Look at you, all your Pokemon references Sorry. today. No, don't apologize. <laughs> it's totally cool. Love Pokemon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they have they have specialized leaves, these pitcher plants, and yeah, it's it's pretty. It's not like insidious, really, but it to picture it being large enough to fit even like a, you know, like a wild boar or a monkey or something. Like imagine a monkey falling into a pitcher plant and it can't escape mm. being digested. Yeah, that's because it's so slippery, right? They have so many different elements besides the fact that they're just like pitcher shaped and they have this um, digestive enzymes floating around there. Yeah. Like it's once you're in, you can't escape. I actually came across um, this one description of the plant and how I didn't know this, but apparently inside the pitcher itself, they have um, different spots where the membrane is translucent to give the impression that there's multiple openings. So the prey becomes even more confused trying to get to an opening that actually doesn't exist. That's, that's. Yeah. And it's just an illusion. See, and there's something about that that's so, like, because. It's so manipulative. It's like there is, there is thought happening Mm. there or something. Intelligent evolution. Intelligent evolution. Yeah. But not like moment to moment thinking necessarily the way we do. No. But uh, I have an interesting point on how plants think actually in a second here too. Interesting. But the story develops even further. It does because, yeah, there, this guy, um, Mackerly, he definitely came across another potential possibility for the existence of these sort of plants. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Carl Schuker, Mackerly wrote that he had discovered information in 1935 from a former British army officer who spent about four months in Madagascar. And apparently this guy witnessed something very similar to the man-eating tree. He took photos of an unidentified species of tree that had very many large animal skeletons beneath it. Yeah. The whereabouts of the photo is unknown. Classic. I'm I'm very curious to know how clean these skeletons were. Because, like, the only other thing, very, yeah, large animal skeletons. The only thing I can think of is that there's a very, very large predator that has a favorite tree. <laughs> he just goes and eats all this food right. and then drops it down. To but the it's bottom. like, I don't even know of w- what the apex predators are in Madagascar. That's actually a good question. We, I would I, imagine panther would be one of them. You'd think, but I wonder if they even have big cats in Madagascar. Um, I don't even know if they do. Some, well, in Madagascar, I, the movie, they do. Do they? <laughs> yeah. Remember? Because it's like, that's what all the lemurs are terrified of, are these big cats. And then oh. in the end, um, what's his name? The lion character. He ends well, up, I wouldn't uh, be surprised if there's, um, I mean. Uh, <laughs> you just cut me off. Really, I don't really care. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> it's fine. It's, <laughs> well, we're talking about Madagascar again. This always happens where we just end up going down a rabbit hole. I, just, something that's I like, want to watch it again. <laughs> oh, we can watch it today if you want. <laughs> but, but the point, yeah, I, I that's a good Where question, are these though. photos? That's my question. Yeah. And what did this tree look like? Was there an accompanying description besides the fact that there were all these skeletons underneath it? Right? Were there similar fronds? Were there the eight leaves that are about 11 to 12 feet long? Were there tendrils at all? Was there anything besides? Were there any 
like human skeletons there. Yeah, he definitely know? didn't say that. Just like large mammal skeletons. But that's an interesting question you have though. Like how clean were they? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very curious. Yeah. Because being secreted from a plant that's digested you, you'd think it'd be like perfectly clean. You know what the I mean? one like, thing too that I have is another question. Um, going back to the original story of the woman being devoured and how her skull was found at the base of the tree about 10 days later. Yeah. Where's the rest of her bones? Were they small enough to be digested? Like, you know, like... Were they the collected the and as yeah. a part of the ceremony or something? Like Maybe birds took them away for their nest. I don't know. I don't even know. <laughs> I whole, didn't know these are our... wild speculation. <laughs> these are wild, definitely. And the speculation continues because there's yet another twist with this man-eating tree of Madagascar. Right. Later in the 90s, there was a Canadian researcher that discovered an account that was published and that, that had been published and then later unpublished in a newspaper from 1875. So what? three years before Leachy's alleged letter... Mm-hmm. Um, and the account stating that the find was not in Madagascar, but actually in New Guinea. Dang. So were these men actually looking in the completely wrong place, or was the original account from Leachy misinterpreted or misdocumented? Oh, yeah. So is this tree in Madagascar, Madagascar or is it in New Guinea? Or is it completely this made is, up? Yeah, no, this is getting more and more interesting. And it's so funny, because obviously, yeah, New Guinea, that again brings to mind a lot of... Um, <laughs> A lot of exotic natured things and it's dangerous funny. things dangerous things yes so of course I had to do a little bit of research into that and how this is just a quote from the clever.com but it says here um quote since the major- vast majority of the area of new guinea remains undocumented and unexplored it is speculated by scientists that a lot of species of flora and fauna still remain undiscovered to this day yeah. obviously a lot is a subjective term but it's funny I, I looked up there's this little tidbit of like you know just like a I love list articles, but anyways, <laughs> it was the top top 15 dangerous reasons why you should stay away from Papua New Guinea. The number one was the cassowary, which is interesting. That's just a giant bird with a talon that's about five inches long, could pierce right through a human heart. Um, you get the venomous taipan, which is a, a type of snake, as well as the death adder, which is another type of snake. Um, the giant centipede, this was hilarious, this is a quote, it says, These creatures are the ultimate douchebags in nature and can grow over seven inches in length. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh gosh. They even got box jellyfish, they got everything there. Yeah. So I was like, okay, you know what? Dangerous, deadly trees? I feel like that would fit right in. Totally. And you know the other, the other here's the other cool thing about cryptobotany mm-hmm. that's different than cryptozoology. Okay. Even for the areas of New Guinea that no Western explorer has ever stepped foot, there's a really good chance that there's a lot of regions that no indigenous people have ever stepped foot simply because of the inaccess- inaccessibility, right? Yeah. A, a, a crevice, you know, like um, super steep cliff faces and stuff, but it's all still within a tropical area mm-hmm. where there could be plants in a tiny little... Because that's just it, right? Like a population of one endemic species of plant theoretically could exist within a few hundred feet yeah. of one section of remote jungle. Mm-hmm. The same way that you'll find, you know, a patch of Venus flytraps in one section of one bog on the exactly. North Carolina coast. Exactly. Yeah. And nobody may have ever crossed those paths yet. A bird that flies by and lands on it gets eaten and digested and we'll never know. Nope. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> that's what I feel like a lot of these accounts, like we haven't got into even half of them yet, but I feel like that, is the case, right? Where these people accidentally stumble and almost become victims or their animals that are with them almost become victims type thing. Yeah. Where it's like, this is exactly how these things work. And a lot of the times 
if this happens to you, you're not going to escape. And yeah. no one's going to hear about you. And no one's going to hear the tale of how you're eaten by a plant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we have yet another one um, that is unknown yet to science. <laughs> and uh, this one is kind of freaky too. Known as the Mexican snake tree. Cool. Now, obviously Mexico is a little bit more of a explored area. You know, the idea of something existing there that's never been seen is a little less likely. But of course, there's areas that have probably never been touched. Probably. So basically, it goes like this. In Mexico, there's another terrifying plant unknown to science. And it does some pretty gruesome things. So it first, it first appeared to Western scientists when it was written about in a journal by a naturalist by the name of Dr. Andrew Wilson in 1892. Basically, it is said to be found on the outlying reaches of the Sierra Madre. It has fast-moving branches that react to the movement and contact uh, with it nearby. Hmm. So, one tale uh, goes as follows, basically. That a wandering, intrepid traveler came across the tree. And without knowing the dangers of it, he leaned on it, resting his hand against the side of the plant, just taking a break. Instantly, as soon as he put his hand on the side of this tree, it closed on his skin so tightly that it broke the skin and started gushing blood. So it, it was that Oof. much force from its branches. The man later returned with chickens to see what would happen. So he returned with chickens, pressed it against the side of the tree in some sort of a strange sort of gruesome experiment. Great. And basically, he claimed that the tree began to suck the blood of the chickens with small suckers on an octopus-like branches. Hmm. So that this tree essentially had willow-like branches, but with small suckers on it. Willow-like branches. So how could this tree go unnoticed, though, is the question, right? S could something really go unnoticed in Mexico for this long? That That's this dangerous, right? Hmm. It's much more likely, I would think, that, you know, New Guinea or remote yeah, Madagascar, you know, make, like makes, makes more sense. Um, despite this, though, the unlikelihood of this, there's some evidence that came from a French explorer in 1934. This guy was named uh, Byron Kuhn de Porac. And he led an expedition into uh, the jungle near Chiapas, and uh, basically he claimed that uh, just after just a couple of hours hiking into the jungle, he came across uh, the following. And so this is another quote from The Beast That Hide From Man, and uh, do you have it there? I do. Okay, let's see. Okay. This is from page 119. It's this quote here. After two hours march, we breathed with difficulty and were bathed in perspiration. Suddenly, I saw Domingo, the leader of the guides, standing before an enormous plant and making gestures for me to go to him. I wondered what could be the matter. I soon saw. The plant had just captured a bird. The poor creature had alighted on one of its leaves, which had promptly closed, its thorns penetrating the body of its little victim, which endeavored vainly to escape, screaming, meanwhile, in agony and terror. Plante vampire, explained Domingo. A cruel smile spreading on his face. Involuntarily, I shuddered. The forest was casting its evil spell upon me. End quote. Yeah. The vampire plant. Yeah. Freaky man. So you can take that account as you will, mm -hmm. um, but definitely curious. That is, yeah. Nonetheless. I'm, yeah. I, that makes a lot of sense, though, if you think about it, because it's just like, it's exactly the way, like, pores secrete things. So, like, the pores of a plant, couldn't it be the reverse, right? Where it's sucking taking it in. It, taking <laughs> like, it. Well, isn't that just what the roots of a plant do? Oh, exactly. Exactly, right? right? It's just above-ground root systems. They take in nutrients. That are, yeah. And we should make that point, actually. The entire purpose of a plant needing to 
eat something is because it lives in a region where it's lacking certain nutrients. The same way mm. we need to eat certain foods to get gain those nutrients, right? Yeah, Gotta exactly. eat some vegetables to get whatever. Totally. If there's a severe lack of nitrogen and things like that, it can get nitrogen and those minerals from living things. Exactly. There you go. So, mm-hmm. Now, before we keep going here, we've got a few out there uh, definitely disturbing accounts of other plants. But we do have a promo break. And we yeah. actually haven't had a promo break for a little while other than uh, I think no. we did Pleasing Terrors a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have a break for a member of the Podfix Network family who, that we are a part of as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a show called Gravity Beard Podcast. It is great. It's Super really funny. Fun. Great interviews. Lots of variety. It's basically a variety show, right? Like yeah. he just, he brings on a bunch of different people from different walks of life, different backgrounds and stuff. Just he, his interview style is really entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a good show. So check looking, her out. Yeah, so take a listen to this promo and uh, go check out Gravity Beard Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Toph, host of Gravity Beard, a podcast featuring interviews and discussions on a wide range of topics. In each episode, I'll either interview a special guest or we'll convene our typical Algonquin roundtable of brilliant minds. Occasionally, we'll even be joined by the host of one of your other favorite podcasts. Then every other week, my buddy Adam stops by for an installment of This Week Today. Whatever we do each week, we promise you'll be entertained. You can find Gravity Beard on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else quality podcasts are sold. And you can always find us and other indie pods in the Underdog Podcast community on Facebook. We're also a member of the Podfix Network. Come check us out. Gravity Beard. It's what your ears will want to be listening to. All right. So, yeah, make sure you go check out that Gravity Beard. And now on to the dog eating tree of Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what she said. That is right. <laughs> so we've got another account by the same Dr. Andrew Wilson who covered the snake tree of uh, Mexico. Or no, sorry, was it the snake tree of Mexico? Yeah, Mexican was it... snake tree. So sort of near, allegedly near Chiapas, in the jungles of near Chiapas. But the original story... It was called the snake a, tree, hey? Yeah. I guess that makes sense, right? With the willow-like, frond-like uh, yeah, it root like things. A, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, yeah. When I think of the snake tree, I'm thinking of the original one with all the like the tendrils frolicking everywhere. But anyways. Actually, that's <laughs> very true, right? Yeah, with the writhing palpi. definitely yeah. sounds like that. Well, they described it as like, yeah, serpents moving. Yeah, whatever, exactly. Right? So there's multiple snake trees going on here. But anyways, this guy, he also wrote about this tree... That was from Nicaragua. And this was feared by indigenous populations for very good reasons. Um, Apparently, it was discovered... Sorry, he discovered it in an article written by a naturalist named Dunstan, who had an experience with a most strange plant when he was... He was just searching for new species. He was just, you know, doing his due diligence as a botanist. Yeah. And his story goes that while he was searching around, um, he suddenly... He had a dog with him that he always had, and his dog had wandered off, and it started yelping like crazy and it was from a distance. So he had to go and find it by the time he reached his dog. Um, it was clearly in distress. He was, it was crying and it had been completely wrapped and was being squeezed in what looked like, um, like rope. It was like root like ropes and, um, basically like really like, yeah, just like vines, I guess. So once again, similar, kind of similar to a weeping willow again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of small tendril-like appendages coming right. off and wrapping themselves quite 
um, viciously around. Anyone who's ever tried to like swing on the branches of a weeping willow or has, you know, played with the ones that are like falling on the ground or whatever, you know how strong they are. They are really tough. Yeah. Yeah. Because the fibers grow in such a way that it, it's like interlocking and yeah, it's like, yeah, anyways, it's like rope. Yeah. But anyways, um, it was very alarming to this guy because as the tendrils were squeezing the dog, it was also, um, emitting this like gum-like black substance from what appeared to be small pores on the surface of the plant. Okay. So this guy was shocked and he reacted quickly. This is his dog and with great difficulty, um, he had to cut through the vines so he couldn't rip them off. He had to literally, he had to use a knife of sorts and it was super sticky, super heavy. He managed to free his dog, but it was basically the damage wasn't um fatal but the dog was definitely struggling and it was being partially digested like there was evidence of blood um on the ground and on the actual parts of the plant that were wrapped around the the animal yeah and basically it was like kind of described as like a post-vampiric um experience where it was like the dog had like lost energy and like couldn't yeah it had been sucked it yeah. been sucked by a, been a vampire by, plant, essentially another yeah. version of it, right? Exactly. So this is in a different part of the world. This is Nicaragua. It's yeah. not Mexico. Like, obviously, same region-ish. Yeah. But this is interesting to me. I don't know. And then we get another one, hey, in Brazil. So this is all over, dotting all over, like, uh, Central and South America. Yeah, and obviously, like, when, when you think of plants like this, obviously Central, South America kind of make the jungles of those regions make a lot of sense. But we started off with Madagascar and New Guinea, and now here we are moving into this. But I don't know. Yeah, Nicaragua and Mexico, definitely places that are more explored. Hmm. That's for sure. But at the same time, if we're going off of what we were saying before, that we think it'd be more likely that crypto, you know, plants like this wouldn't be discovered, then it makes just as much sense that they would be in the jungles of Nicaragua. Yeah. That we may have walked past them. People may have walked past them hundreds of times and never actually mm-hmm. come across them. And then it, right? the other unfortunate souls that happen to be trapped within them. And then, like, how many times do you think it's happened where it's like, oh, so-and-so went to the jungle, never came back? Yeah, and nobody knows why, right? You, you blame <laughs> I mean, it on whatever. but any, It could be anything. Exactly. It could be a man-eating plant. It could be a jaguar. It could be anything. It could be anything. You never know. So we have more of these plants coming up. And they all have sort of their different variations. And the next couple are from Brazil. So there's three, actually, kind of trees that are, uh, that are part of the folklore in Brazil. The devil tree, the monkey trap tree, and the yataveo tree. Okay. So I'll start off with the yataveo um, because this one's... This one's I like this one. It's it's cool. Mm-hmm. In an 1887 book, this plant was actually named the Yataveo tree, and yet another man-eater said to dwell in the dense jungles of Central America. Mm-hmm. So it was named by a guy named J.W. Boole, um, and his book was titled Land and Sea, and basically looking at uh, unexplained animals and creatures and things. So he described it as having a massive trunk with many shoots coming out of the top of the tree, and these shoots were covered in large spines. So the shoots hung down to the ground. So this is, again, similar to Mm. kind of the Madagascar tree and also similar to kind of like the (laughs) Mexican snake tree. So the shoots hung down to the ground, seemingly motionless, of course, Mm -hmm. until someone comes too close. Unsuspecting And of course, without warning, the shoots spring to life, wrap their prey, crushing against the side of the tree and impaling its victim with the spines on these branches. Okay. So it's essentially picture a... Yeah, it's like a rope full of nails <laughs> that's yeah. slashing you, pinning you, and dragging and you. And then just absorbing you. Against the side of its of, the tr- of its trunk. 
That's crazy. Yeah. That's freaky, man. Pretty freaky. The next one is very similar. So we also have the devil tree. So this one, okay, so I, I should say, like, this that has some differences than the others, other than the fact that it's obviously a man killer. Mm-hmm. So instead of having its deadly appendages above the ground, like the snake tree and like the Yataveo tree, the devil tree hides its tendrils beneath the soil. Ooh. So allegedly snaring its victims as it walks over the trap. Interesting. So, I mean, this sounds like an adaptation that's a real thing. You know, that sounds like an evolutionary adaptation. Oh, like yeah. It, that it would be... That it would be... All of these sound real to me. To I know, honest. but it's like... The, this one reminds me almost more of like the funnel spider where you're hiding beneath the ground. Or True. it's more of a mechanism like the Venus flytrap. Like, you don't know it's there. You walk over it, it closes. Yeah. I find that to be a little bit more of a natural mechanism than above ground tendrils that wrap. I don't know why. So are... Okay. So these are root-like appendages. Right. Hmm. So, yeah. It hides its tendrils beneath the snoil, soil, snaring its victim as it walks <laughs> the over. Snoil. The snoil. <laughs> so... In 1932, a man by the name of Thomas W.H. Sorrell, he was from the UK, he set mm-hmm. off uh, specifically to look for this tree. And it was also known as the octatree because of the underground tentacles oh, that, yeah. that were similar to an octopus. All these are very reminiscent of an I, octopus-like creature. Very much it's so, like right? It's like Cthulhu of the plant world. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it's, anyway. It, it really is, though. It, it is. It's like, I, I don't even know. It's like, I want to find one of these things, but I don't. It's like uh, so many things that we cover in the show. It's like, I want to know if it's real, but I also... I'm I don't kinda... want to run into it myself. Right. I, I'd love to go see it as a display in a museum. That would be awesome. Right. Yeah. Of course, this isn't the only deadly plant known to uh, inhabit the jungles of central Brazil. There's mm. another one known as the uh, monkey eating tree, the monkey trap tree. That basically, yeah, traps full-size monkeys. So it's what? said to dwell somewhere okay. on the border of Brazil and Guiana. So basically, unlike the vines of its of the others where it wraps its prey, this tree has massive leaves that attract animals with a with a scent. So uh, very much okay. like the flowers of the island the of death. The death tree, yep. Um, or the alleged island of death, right? Right. So they uh, attracts things, they get comfortable near the plant, and then of course these leaves will slowly close mm-hmm. around the prey, very much like Venus flytrap. But of course it's big enough to encapsulate a monkey. Mm-hmm. So who's to say that I couldn't... And some of these monkeys, just to say, like, I mean, when they're standing on their hind legs, even when we're thinking of, like, a howler or different, you know, mammals like this, they're they're tall. Probably at least, like, three and a half feet. Oh, minimum, for sure. I mean, howlers would be even taller than that. Four. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, that's that's not, in my mind, that's not out of the realm of possibility for something to grow to be something to be the size that can digest something like you or me. Yeah, and the legends go that it only takes three days. So Oof. unlike the ten day of the uh, the the flower from Madagascar, this allegedly digests mammals in three days. Will secrete a skeleton. Just yeah. Very similar to our digestive systems. And this one reminded me. I put a little note here. It's like totally reminded me of the ancient insects episode of X Files, where they're basically oh. cocooning things, yeah. digesting it within the cocoon, only to have Oof. a partially digested skeleton drop out of it a few days later. Exactly. Yeah. Just like a, a desiccated, um, yeah, completely dried up, um, digested body. Just ugh. disturbing. That actually, yeah, that's a really interesting comparison. Right. <laughs> this reminds me of, yeah, this has X-Files written all over it. Totally. Man. That kind of brings us to the end of the stories, though. This brings this bringing us into our theories and thoughts section of the episode. Okay. 
So uh, let's talk about some of the similarities we've seen between the reports. Either these things, okay, so the actual mechanisms to entice. Some of them are tricksters, right? They're lying in wait, they're hiding, they're trappists. Others are more, they are luring. So yeah. they're, they're, they have scents, they have um, appendages that look kind of perhaps um, attractive to other things. Yeah. Or blossoms that are so beautiful that you just can't help but lie against it and then be, you know, kind of uh, enraptured by its seduction, so to speak. Totally. This is going to sound weird. Maybe a strange comparison. I don't know why my brain's going there. Maybe it's just because we just watched like The Witch and some of these sort of witchcraft things. Mm. But isn't there some similar sort of descriptors? Um, w- w- like, hey, when the I think of the movie, the w- yeah. So like, mm-hmm. you've got the one version of these plants that's like, oh, it sort of beckons you in with this mm-hmm. beautiful smell and this, this, and that, and the other. And that reminds me of like the scene with Caleb going yep, into the totally. woods. But then you also have the violent tendrils of like basically as just a straight like something demonic, something yeah. violent, instantaneous, not alluring, but just deadly and dangerous and evil. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. there's metaphors to be had here. Oh, for sure. And the idea even, like, okay, so we have the mechanisms of attraction and then the mechanisms of digestion, right? So some of them are more violent where it's actually, yeah, like spearing its victim, like the bird that was in that one story. Yeah. Or perhaps, like, the other from the, the Brazil. of the guy on the side of the tree, too. Yes. Like, getting, you know, Ugh. instantaneously crushed. That's so bizarre, man. Yeah. I, yeah. No, it's... To me, okay, so what to you is the most plausible out of all of those? Like the pitcher plant style where it's just slowly digesting in fluids or the more um, violent type of like, like suction and uh, like stabbing through to kind of get to the Well, here's the thing. I, okay, we, yeah, there's, there's, okay, there's so many rabbit holes with this, right? Because like when I think of there being something like the snake tree or like the Nicaraguan dog devouring tree, yeah. those sound so ancient, like prehistoric plants, plants that needed to have those adaptations to survive in a time when the nutrients were so drastically different and mm-hmm. when the prey that they needed to catch in order to survive would have been bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That would require something to have been like preserved in amber seeds or spores or something like that. Um, Some sort of DNA of Mm. some kind. So I don't know about the likelihood of the Mexican snake trees and those types of ones. Like it would be so cool to find. Maybe they exist in a nook and cranny of New Guinea in a crevice somewhere. But we do know pitcher plants are real. Yeah. And for there to be one large enough for a human to fit in doesn't sound that unlikely to me at all. And if they're attracting other small mammals, why not humans too? Especially if you're maybe malnourished out in the jungle, the humidity's messing with your mind a little bit. You know, you just you just never know. You just never know. Well, because then we've seen like I don't know. This is reminding me of uh, another BBC thing too with the the zombie ants. Remember, there's like that fungi that will get in that will. It, it gets into the ants' brains. Oh, true. And it causes them to, like, walk up and basically commit suicide, and then the fungus grows out of them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very insidious uh, mechanism of a plant, but it's mind control, almost. It is. Yeah. Manipulation to a certain extent. And these are things that we know exist. You know, getting back to, like, what's most plausible and what we already know exists, obviously, yeah, we have the two... The two examples of the pitcher plant, and then we have the Venus flytrap. And yeah. when you look closely at a Venus flytrap under a magnifying glass or whatever, you will notice uh, there are like these sensory hairs on the inside that basically activate the mechanism of closure. And 
if you look at them though, they're spindly, right? Like they're very sharp looking. And when you see the little insect trying to crawl out, like they're, they're, um, the structure is there so that they're not like, they're not loose. Like, sorry, not loose. What's the word? They're not like bendable. They're very, they're, they're, they're erect. spines. They're, they're stiff. They're erect. Yeah. Sorry, those are both. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> well, no, they're like nails. They're basically they like, yeah. So if you think about it, right, what's to say that some other type of plant could have used a similar type of mechanism that has, it, it's like a nerve, a sensory nerve that would activate a mechanism like, say, the closing of a branch to the trunk of a tree and the spines themselves, because the, the nature of the plant is so much larger, those spines, those sensors are, in fact, Big enough able to, to spear exactly yeah. and impale the victim. Yeah. To me, like, all of this is very highly plausible. It's Because it all happens just on a smaller scale. This it is does. very much like the, I can't remember what episode we were talking about it in, but the idea of just, like, our perception of size and, like, how mm-hmm. that messes. Like, we, 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 skeptics think that these things can't exist because of the, their description of being big mm-hmm. enough to fit a man or big enough to pin a man. Exactly. But it's like, that's just because of what we know to exist, mm-hmm. right? Yet, at the same time, we know the corpse flower exists. Yeah. And it doesn't eat humans, but when it's in bloom, it is over nine feet tall. Mm-hmm. That there is, you, go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's so. a lot of precedents here that are of of known, in the known world that we can use to kind of, <laughs> but there are others, right? So yeah, 583 <laughs> others, technically. That are carnivorous, yeah. technically. And that's interesting. Like, I didn't actually... Because obviously the pitcher plant and the Venus flytraps are the two most obvious. Right. But there's a few others. Like, this hilarious little named butterwort. The butterwort. The butterwort. Sounds like something from Harry Potter. It does. Oh, my gosh. It totally does. (laughs) (laughs) Cute. But this one is, yeah, it's, it's a very beautiful, brightly colored flower that draws insects in. But it's the leaves that actually kill. Okay. And they're covered in this greasy type substance and it just envelops this insect or the victim or whatever. And then the leaves wrap around it and then they slowly digest. But Which it's is exactly um, the way these other stories are describing. It's, it's interesting because this one moves a lot more slowly, okay. unlike the Venus flytrap, which is pretty much instantaneous within a few seconds type thing. Right. This can take an hour. So, like, I'm, I'm assuming the insect is trapped by the greasy like substance. Trapped and, and then or... and then the slow curling of the leaves right. happens very slowly. What to you is more insidious? The idea of being trapped, like you're stuck, mm-hmm. or you're you could escape, but you are hallucinating, or like the insect is disillusioned, like you described with the pitcher plant. You're trying to escape in a direction where there is no escape. Oh. You know what I mean? It's well, manipula- that's terrible. It's manip- all terrible. <laughs> it's ma- it, that's, the manipulation I think, is I think so the, fascinating. I think not being able to... Immobility would be the worst. And if you're consciously aware, it would almost be a blessing, right? To have something like a hallucination take place where you're just like, oh, I'm just in the nicest little dream right now in the comfiest bed. And Whilst never you're being wake up. slowly digested. Well, exactly. If you're unaware of it, then that's a blessing. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> Easy question. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there is something more insidious to that, though. I think it really? reminds me once again, I'm reminded of the witch where the mom, mother is, you know, she thinks she's nursing her child, but really it's a crow pecking yeah, at her. But you're, I suppose the, it's the only insidious for the person watching yeah. <laughs> or the idea of it existing. The person that comes across it later. Right, yeah. yeah, totally. There's so, another one here. I, I loved this one. It's such a cute looking, it looks like a Dr. Seuss plant. It's beautiful. It's called the Drosera caponisis or the sundew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this one is 
quite clever. It lures and ensnares its prey with glistening, sticky droplets coating the leaves. And then as soon as it's sort of uh, ensnared its prey, it begins to curl in on itself. It's like these long type of, um, they almost look like cattails or something. Like, very cute though. It's almost like they're just heavily laden with dew. So I could see that being very enticing for an insect that's like, oh, I'm going to go get a drink. And that's like, nope. Right. <laughs> Trapped now. Yeah. You're dead. Yeah. Mm. Um, but anyways, this is just a quote from a blog here that we came across. And it says here, quote, the tiny hairs on the sundew's leaves produce and offer a sticky, sweet nectar to its insect victims. Once caught, the insects struggle and trigger these tentacles of leaves that wrap around and ultimately either exhaust or suffocate the prey. Next, the sundew secretes digestive juices that eat the insects slowly. Meanwhile, high above the sundew, beautiful flowers burst into bloom, opening early in the morning and fading away in the hours of the evening. Sundews, like pitcher plants, can grow in a variety of climates around the world. In fact, they comprise up to 25% of all carnivorous plants that are known in the world. Crazy. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. That is really crazy. Wow. So... This was, so this next part here is something that I pulled up. Okay. There's not a ton. I mean, this is just a small little thing I wanted to mention. There's a lot more to it. We could have an entire episode just on this. <laughs> and there's multiple articles, but one that I pulled up was from, uh, by David Suzuki. No way. Who is like a Canadian researcher, obviously. And Suzuki we've got. Suzuki Method, Piano yeah. School. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. And we've got kind of an interesting, actually, I think we just sold the property, but we have an interesting connection to, to David Suzuki. We owned a piece of property next to him on Nelson Island. They sold it? I think they just sold the, the Fam Jam did. But, I thought uh, that was like our zombie apocalypse uh, safeguard base. Not anymore. <laughs> Gotta head out to the Kootenays, I guess. Uh. But he has done a lot of research on a lot of different things, but this one article was talking about fungi. And I thought oh. this was so interesting because basically there's research that suggests that fungi help other plants. They communicate directly with and aid in the... Um, you know, acquisition of nutrients and other necessary things for trees, shrubs, and other plants. They're basically like the messengers. The me- so- yeah, I feel like I've seen that in like some like Planet Earth or some sort yeah. of nature documentary is talking about, yeah, the communications and, and the chemicals that fungi can pass along. Exactly. So mm-hmm. the question that this brought up for me was like, maybe when we're thinking about trying to find these carnivorous plants, are we looking for the wrong source or the wrong... The source of the evolution, possibly, or the control or the assistance that these possible giant carnivorous Mm. plants have in order to survive. Mm -hmm. Because if they're in these remote regions with not enough nitrogen in the soil or different things like that, these are the prime candidates to have fungi help them survive. Oh, for sure. Um, In addition to them, obviously, catching prey. So anyway, there's new research that reveals that mushrooms can even then can help other plants communicate, share nutrients, and even defend themselves against disease and other predators such as insects. Cool. So that's not even, and possibly other things too. This is still early in research. I've actually even uh, I feel like I, honestly don't quote me on this, but I feel like I've heard of this type of communication happening even in um, the settings of say like wildfires or other sorts of extreme uh, natural events where. Um, or even like logging and stuff where like they'll send, like, you know, it's almost like a warning, like, you know, right. and, and the plants will react in a certain way or mm-hmm. do certain things to kind of protect themselves or right. try to kind of like ready themselves for whatever's coming. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, or even it will, um, dictate the growth. So where the new root systems kind of pop up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm most interested in when, 
in regards to this, right? Scientists say that over 90% of all land-based plants are involved in this mutually beneficial relationship with fungi. So when I, when I, I'm interested in this because we're talking about if a man-eating plant could exist in a place that's so remote where a human hasn't stepped foot possibly, then we might be able to find evidence for it in fungal filaments that are way far away. Is what, I'm, is what I'm trying to say. Like, there could be underground fungal filaments communicating with these plants mm-hmm. because they have a mutually beneficial relationship with a carnivorous carnivorous plant. So they benefit from the nutrients that the plant Because absorbs. those fungi need the nutrients that they are struggling to get too. Mm-hmm. But they can't necessarily so catch a, a bird. It's a symbiotic relationship. It's the same thing between, what is it, um, moss and lichen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So... Could there, yeah, I, I think like maybe there, there's a, a possible connection there in finding some of these man-eating plants. Hmm. That there could be this, yeah, this relationship with fungi. Okay, well, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I, I, I Yeah. I, I love the idea that plants are so much more intelligent than we give them credit for and that there is so much more awareness and um, uh, interiority that we can't really access and or maybe a few people in this world can like um, plant whispers <laughs> yeah, possibly <laughs> but yeah no it's i i'm i am of the mind that intelligence if you define intelligence in human centric terms then you're um, vastly limited in your um, in your understanding of what intelligence can possibly encompass exactly mm-hmm. totally so we're finishing off here with kind of some places where we think that these uh, plants are most likely to exist and obviously the ones that we've mentioned so far but yeah, there's the Brazils, a few Brazil's, Madagascar's, and the Papua New Guinea's. Of course. And just to be more specific, like with Brazil and stuff like that. So like the Amazon rainforest covers over a billion acres. So there's a lot. <laughs> That's there. insane. Of course, it's a ton of it's being logged. It's a lot of it's been lost. You know, that whole, like um, that old adage where it's like, oh yeah, you know, the cure for cancer, it exists. It's in the Amazon rainforest and we just like logged over it or something, or it's still in there somewhere. Who's to say that the same can't be said about these types of man-eating plants? That's what I'm thinking. And I really hope that cure is still out there and we haven't logged over it. Maybe it is one of the man-eating plants somehow. <gasps> Who knows, right? Mind exploded. So definitely there's room for, yeah, the remote Amazon to house one of these things. And one of those places would be the province of, or the region of Vale do, do Javari, Brazil. So this is one of the rem- okay. most remote regions of the Amazon that still has some indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. So this would make sense for stories to be trickling out of okay. these regions. There's mm-hmm. still some people there. Around 3,000 indigenous people live in this area. Various, varying sorts of contacts. So this includes the um, the Matisse, the... The Mateses, the Kulina, various other groups. There's a whole bunch of different. Mayoruna. Yeah. Hmm. So that's one area. The other in Madagascar that we've sort of been nowadays, if you're thinking like where in 2018 would it be most likely to find one of these plants, would be probably in the, <laughs> how do you pronounce this? <laughs> Singi de Baramara National Park. Yeah, sure. Singi de Baramara National or, Park. Sorry, Bermaraha. Bermaraha. <laughs> National Park. <laughs> right? So, yeah, named for its unique massive limestone formations. Oh, that's uh, interesting. It says here, Singi is um, a, a native language um, that can be translated as walking on tiptoes. Interesting. Hmm. So 600 square mile National Park National Preserve, and it's on the western edge of the island. So basically a labyrinth of jagged needle-shaped limestone rock faces, part, you know, jungles. <gasps> Andrew? What? This labyrinth of jagged needle-shaped limestone 
was featured in Madagascar, the movie. That's it where was. the lions, like the, the crazy, creepy, I don't even know what they are, actually, if they're some type of jaguar or some type of cat, but that, that's where they live. Okay. They live in this, the, the land of just this pure stone, and it's, like, really freaky looking. And that's where Marty the lion goes because he gets, you know, he's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a carnivore. I need to go be right. with my carnivore people. And then he goes and starts howling <laughs> and he's there. Right. Sorry, that was just like, no, oh, okay. my gosh. They well, did a good go. job. And those are, that is obviously a region that would be tough to access oh, for definitely. humans, right? Mm-hmm. So you never know. Why would you really want to go there unless you're totally. on a mission? Last but not least, we obviously mentioned Papua New Guinea and one of the specific regions in that country, the Star Mountain Range, hmm. would be a place that I think could be okay. a location of one of these man-eaters. So this remote region in the western half of Papua New Guinea, it contains basically massive limestone plateaus as well, similar Whoa. to Madagascar. The Hindenburg Wall. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, over 30, 30 miles, miles long. Wow. Crazy different bluffs and different sort of outcrops and things like that ecosystems high above the ground all undisturbed that's very crazy a recent biological survey of the area found over a thousand animal and plant species almost a hundred of which were completely new to science Hmm. so there you go that's interesting okay wait so this is the same neck of the woods where we were talking about in our um giant birds of the sky episode yeah uh, thunderbirds yeah we were talking about that one particular eagle that was feeding on um, skulls of, or sorry, it, the skulls of monkeys that it had fed on were found in these nests, right? Was that the same area? I'm trying or that... to remember if that was New Guinea or New Zealand. There was also evidence in West Africa of larger... Oh, I think it was the West African one, yeah. Right. But I there definitely was, uh, there were, it was a more of a prehistoric bird reported in New Guinea. Oh, okay. It was like a pterosaur. Like a some okay. sort of a pterosaur or something like that. Okay. Um, but, and people still claim to see it. So, and like we just said, look, 100, 100 species of which were brand new to science. And this is just recently in these massive plateaus, right? That's... Other that's obvious me. areas would be like central Congo and the national oh, yeah. parks in, the, in central Africa and things like that. But there haven't been reports from there. No. So we're basically left with the search in, I think, the most likely places in New Guinea, personally. Yeah, New Guinea and Madagascar. And it's interesting, too, if you think about it, right? Like, um, the places we've talked about kind of are in that sort of um, central Mecca of um, Central America, South America on on um, the Atlantic side. Right. And then we get the Madagascar and Papua New Guinea on the other side of the ocean. Right. But if you think about it, in ancient times, those sub, those continents were together at one point. Yeah. And so the this we're talking about biological evolution that could have been occurring over hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. And this could be just the last remnants of it. Right. And and who's to say? Because these are all fairly antiquated reports. Like the most recent comes from the, the early thir- 1900s. Yeah, or the 30s, I guess you the could 30s. say, from that British, uh, the guy with the, the photos. Right. So that would be the... But even that's debatable, right, as to whether or not the plant was responsible for that or exactly. something else. If he had offered some type of more elaborate description on what he had seen or if we actually had some of those photos, that would be great. Yeah. But... Yeah, no. In, in in all of these cases, I'm trying to come up with some sort of conclusion here. Like, I, what do you think? Like, would be, like, what is your theory as to how these plants have managed to kind of evade notice if they do exist? 
Like, is it just the the sheer remoteness? Is that kind of the... I think, well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. It's like... That's the only thing they have riding for them because it's the only thing they can move around. Totally, because it's like, you'd think that like, you know, even like say the Mexican snake tree, they come across it, but then they report it, it come back, and then you'll send an expedition and go find this thing and there will be a specimen of it, right? Mm -hmm. You'd think. Mm -hmm. Unless it's so remote that like you can't retrace your steps to it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or... It's found and burned, like locals or indigenous, like, right? They're like, you know what? This is one of the ones. We need to get rid of this thing. And the evidence of the one that's being discovered is gone, but there's still others hiding. That's actually a really good point, too, to make. Yeah, as the the advent of massive wildfires of, like, you know, just natural events that could have potentially wiped out, or even disease, for example, like that could be another. What if? Okay, this is a wild stretch of the imagination, but what if one of these trees... That was one of the last, it was like the only survivor and it got hold of a victim that had say like a bloodborne virus, like HIV or something. And then the tree actually got AIDS too and <laughs> just died. I don't know if that's impossible. And uh, there's probably a lot of uh, botanists that are just shaking their heads. Oh, of course. Right <laughs> but I mean, we're talking purely hypothetical right now. Exactly, and and yeah. that's, uh, but th- those are the types of stories that have like gotten into the, uh, the, the folklore of just humanity thinking about these things. And we think of all the movies, like I had a list up, we're not going to talk about it, but like one of the movies that I was reminded of was the ruins. It was like kind of a relatively recent horror movie, I think 2008 or something like that. But it was uh, about a group in Mexico. They find some ancient ruins, but of course these ancient ruins have, it's this one tiny location of the jungle Mm -hmm. where there's this one type of plant that grows. And spoiler alert, people came out a long time ago. (laughs) It's only endemic to that one section and it, will kill you. And the indigenous peoples in that movie would block them off and were trying to prevent the small group from ever leaving this temple because they knew that that was basically the temple of this plant. And no birds would land on it. There was no insects around it, anything like that. And so that kind of makes... Was that the movie that kind of was based off of the same plant that J.K. Rowling used in the first Harry Potter? Remember where Hermione, they're they're going through to get the Philosopher's Stone and they, the first chamber is where they fall into that pit where it's those the, the, um, the plant that has all those tendrils and Hermione's like, just relax, don't move or else you'll, it'll just suffocate you. Right. That's interesting, right? Because mm. that's almost like an anaconda plant. Very much so. This is bringing to mind so many, like, things from even just my childhood, like that um, Go- Goosebumps book, Don't Go Into the Basement, where the dad is legit like a plant. Yep. There's <laughs> like, a, yeah. Little Shop of Horrors, of course, is another, yeah. like, right? Like, there's so many modern conceptions of these man-eaters. Mm-hmm. Do you think they exist? Do you think that they're, ultimately, do you think that there is something out there? I'm of the mind that of all the things we've looked at, I would like to believe that at least one of these things is still out there. (laughs) Because obviously we know the pitcher plants are still out there. We know the Venus flytraps. Who knows how those plants um, within their own subspecies and genuses are um, like evolutionizing and, or evolutionizing, (laughs) evolving. evolving. Find a a pitcher plant the size of a corpse flower. I think that's totally possible. Let us know what you guys think. Mm -hmm. Which one of these stories do you think uh, sounds the most realistic and give us your version of what you think could exist? Yeah. You know, we're not uh, biologists by any means. We just like to speculate. And if you have your own deadly man-eating plant that we haven't discussed make sure you get at us sure mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah so as always uh into the portal mailbox at gmail.com and then we also have our socials so go hit us up on twitter we're into the portal one we've also got instagram which is into the portal podcast yeah 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 we have the forum on there so <laughs> hop on and uh we've got oh, some cool oh and the facebook forum yeah that's, yeah that's the fun one yeah 
lots of interaction on there. So come and join us and yeah, uh, yeah give us your take. Definitely. And as always, um, thank you so much to everybody who's left us a review. And uh, if you haven't yet and you have the time, please go click those five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever <laughs> you listen to Into the Portal. We really appreciate you guys. And uh, thank you so much for listening yeah. to this crypto botanical episode. <laughs> and we will see you next week.